One of my favorite books of the Bible is this book called Philippians. I believe it has probably as much practical truth in it as any passage in any book that you'll find concerning the matter of growing spiritually and advancing in our happiness in the Lord. As a matter of fact, as Paul writes to the church of Philippi, we can see from verse 25 that this is one of his concerns. Look at what he says in verse 25. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. You see, Paul had a desire for the spiritual lives of these believers to be advancing and their joy to be abundant. And by the way, let me just say, as you are advancing in your spiritual life, your joy will be abounding. They actually go together. Because if you are not growing, I like to say you are not glowing. And Paul wanted these people to grow and he wanted them to glow. Paul wanted to help these believers to be all that they should be and all that they should become as Christians. He wanted them to grow up in their Christian life and go forward in their Christian living. As a matter of fact, I think we can simply state it this way. Paul wanted these Christians to be Christian-like. If they were going to call themselves Christians, then they needed to be Christian-like. I don't think it's harsh to expect people who profess that they're Christians, to be Christian-like. I think if they're going to name themselves and call themselves a Christian, if they're going to profess it, then they ought to practice it. Somebody has said, if you see something that waddles like a duck, quacks like a duck, swims like a duck, then you get the idea that it's it's a duck. Well, the question I have for you tonight is this. When other people look at your life, when they see you, do they get the idea that you are a Christian? I'm not asking you tonight, are you a Christian? What I want to ask you tonight is, are you Christian-like? And beginning there in verse 27, Paul speaks about three areas in which a Christian ought to be Christian-like. If you say you're a Christian, then here's something that ought to be true about your life. And let's quickly look at these three things from this passage. Look again at verse 27. And I want you to note with me that we see that if a person is a Christian, then there is a conduct that is expected. Look at verse 27. Only, and and let me pause there because we would probably just bypass that word and overlook that word and go ahead and read on at what Paul is saying here. But that word only there is a little word, but an important word. It actually is a word of priority. It's actually a word that says only this. And it's the way Paul says that this takes priority over everything else. This is the primary thing on the to-do list for the Christian. 
And what Paul says that this one main thing that we should do above all other things is to let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. He is talking about the expected conduct of a Christian. Now most of the time today when we use that word conversation, we're talking about our talk. We have conversations with other people. We call it a dialogue between two people. But here this word conversation that Paul speaks of is more than our talk. It's actually a word that speaks about our walk. It's it's our conduct. It's our behavior. It's the way that we live our life. It's not so much as what we say, though it includes that. But really it is more so what we do as Christians. And Paul is saying that there is a certain conduct, a certain behavior, a certain way of living that is expected of those that are Christians. And so don't miss it tonight. If you are a Christian, it is Christ-like and Christian-like to have a certain kind of conduct. Now two particular things I want you to note in this passage. First of all, It's to be a befitting conduct. That word conversation, again, it's used here in a political way. Actually, it's a political word. It's it's a word that's used to describe a citizen. And it's a word that believers here in this city of Philippi would have quickly known and been associated with and they would have understood. You see, at this particular time, Rome ruled the world and This city of Philippi was a Roman colony and Roman colonies were just little bits of Rome that were planted throughout the then known world. So in these colonies it was befitting, it was proper, it was even expected that these people would live and act like Romans. They spoke the Roman language, they wore the Roman attire, they handled all their affairs like the Romans would handle them. They all resembled act like, went along with the Roman ways. One man said it's probably similar to like Little Italy in New York and Chinatown in San Francisco where the culture and the atmosphere is like those particular countries. And the culture and the atmosphere in Philippi was like that of Rome. So what Paul is saying here to these Christians is, He's saying, you know these citizens of Philippi, how they act like Romans. You you know how they are devoted to the honor and that earthly kingdom. You understand that. You see that. Where you are a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. And you should live and act like citizens of that heavenly country. I want to remind us all tonight that the book of Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 says that our conversation or our citizenship is in heaven from which we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, this world's not our home. This is not where we're bound. This is not where our citizenship is. We are not of this world. Jesus reminded us that in John chapter 17 as he prays For those believers and those that would eventually follow him. He said, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil. For they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I remind you, Hebrews 11 verse 13 speaks about Christians being strangers and pilgrims on this earth. Again, this is not our home. We're simply passing through. 
Luke 20 reminds us that our names are written in heaven. Folks, we reside here, but in reality, we have our residence there. And so Paul is saying to these individuals, the life that you live here, behave as a heavenly citizen. Perform your spiritual duties and the duties of life as a heavenly citizen. Live out the values. Live out the principles that are eternal and not earthly. That's the Christ-like, Christian-like conduct that you and I should have if we are Christians. It's expected. It's what we should be doing. But there's a second type or word that talks about this conduct. Not only a befitting conduct, but also it should be a becoming conduct. Look again at verse 27 at the Bible and it says, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel. That word becometh is a word that means worthy. Worthy of the gospel. The Christian life, the life that we live, should be worthy of the gospel. There are several places in the scriptures that talks about the life that we live and, and how it should be worthy of something. Ephesians 4 and verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Colossians 1.10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk worthy. The Bible says. But again, we have to ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to walk worthy? That word worthy is a word that was used to describe the balancing of a scale. If you want to balance a scale, you take a, a standard weight of a, of a pound and you would put it on this side. And then if you were weighing out corn or, or grain and you wanted a pound, you'd, you'd take that grain and pull it out on the other side of the scale. And, and when they finally balanced out, you would stop to have that one pound. And each side weighed out. It was worthy of the other side, equal to. And again, that's the idea here that, that Paul is saying to us. He, he's telling us that we have a standard of which we need to measure our conduct by, our behavior by. And by the way, it's a heavenly standard. And it's called the gospel of Christ. God's given us His Word, and it's that Word that we are to balance out our daily lives with. It's to equal to that which it states and teaches. We're to live our life as the Word instructs us to live it. There was a church member that asked their pastor one time, he said they had a neighbor that had moved in that had believed a false gospel, and they wanted to know the literature that they should give to them to change their thoughts and opinions. And the pastor turned to 2 Corinthians 3, 2 that said, Ye are our epistles written in our hearts, known and read of all men. And he said, The literature in the world that people need to read is your own life. That little poem, you're writing a gospel, a chapter a day, by the deeds that you do and the words that you say. Men may read what you write, whether faithful or true. So what is the gospel according to you? And our lives need to be worthy of the gospel. I was listening to a Christian radio station several years ago and they were talking about 
a study that had been done among restaurant owners and managers and waitresses. And they asked them what was the hardest day to work. And you know what day it was? Sunday. You know why? All the Christians coming in, having their meals, being hard, being mean, being impatient, being impossible about the meal and and not giving the tips like this year. They said that was the hardest day to work because of people like that coming in. That's That's a sad testimony, is it not? A sad testimony. That thing ought not be. We are to be the kindest, most understanding, most patient, most loving people that there is. If we are Christians, there is a type of conduct that is expected out of us. One that is befitting and becoming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would just say to all of us, let's all examine ourselves tonight to make sure that life that we're living is Christ-like, is Christian-like, we claim to be a Christian, then let that conduct show forth that. There's a conduct that is expected. But secondly, look again at verse 27, because Paul also lets us know if we're a Christian, then there's also a cooperation that is exhibited. Look at verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul was responsible for establishing this church at Philippi. And as with other churches he, he established, he often would check them out, either by maybe a personal visit, a personal letter, to see just how things were going in the church. He, he wanted to know the affairs of the church, how the church was progressing on, and how the church was doing, what was the spiritual temperature of the church. And by the way, this church has a spiritual temperature. And Paul wanted to know what the spiritual temperature was of this particular church. And here the particular thing that he was most interested in, that he wanted to check out, was unity in the church. Did you know unity is an important thing in the body of Christ? So important that in chapter 4, Paul is going to call the names of two ladies in the church that aren't getting along. I mean, he's going to name them. And he's going to plead for the fellow workers to help them reconcile and resolve matters between them. And Brother Christian's given me two people to point out tonight to do that. No, not really. But let me just say this. Don't ever think that your relationship with people does not affect the church. Paul saw so much of it being a leaven that he addressed the issue, called the names of the people, and called the people within the church to deal with the matter. You see, there is a cooperation in the church and among fellow believers that ought to be exhibited and shown in the Christian life. 
And there's two particular things here that Paul mentions that are so vital. And I mean they are so vital for a church to have. And it's vital for this church right here to have if this church body is to function as it ought to function. Notice what he talks about here concerning this expected cooperation, this cooperation that is exhibited. Look again at verse 27 because he speaks about an undivided people. Look at verse 27. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Paul talks about an undivided people. A people who stand fast, In one spirit. Now the spirit there that he talks about is our attitude, our disposition that we as Christians manifest through the Holy Spirit in our life. And that spirit of that disposition should be that of love and pleasantness, meekness, forbearance, acceptance, gentleness, forgiveness, humility. Those spirits that actually help to make and keep the unity within the church. You see, folks, Christians are not to be characterized by division and disunity. There's not to be the schisms and the factions amongst us. There's not to be the strife and the contention, the fusses and the feuds. There's not to be hatred and hurting of one another. We're not to be bitter and backbiting brothers and sisters in Christ. We're to be a united people. That spirit disrupts the unity in the church. The spirit in the church and the Holy Spirit's work in the church. But listen, unity doesn't come easily. As a matter of fact, I want you to note again in this passage how Paul states it. Look again at verse 27 at what he says. That ye, and what's that next phrase? Read it with me. Ready? Oh, I'm sorry. You, you missed that, didn't you? Look at verse 27, that phrase, that ye, what? Stand fast in one spirit. Now again, that phrase, stand fast, is a phrase that all of us need to know when it comes to this matter of unity. It's a phrase that means remaining fixed where you are, keeping a firm position planted. It's instructions kind of like a soldier might hear from his commander as they're being attacked. And that commander would yell to his soldiers, Hold your ground! Hold your ground! Actually, the idea of holding a fixed, established position in spite of the opposition. Now let me give you a a sports illustration to show you that. I love sports, amen? I love athletics. I like to participate and and watch just about any sport that there is. But there's one sport that I don't like to watch and one sport that I know that I should not participate in. And that's sumo wrestling. How many know sumo wrestling? How many know why I don't like to watch it? How many know why I shouldn't participate in it? Yeah, yeah. Sumo wrestling. 
But you've seen those big sumo wrestlers, haven't you? They stand there. Throwing out that dust, ready to go. A little bit bigger than I am, of course. But they give us a great word picture of that picture, stand fast. Because the ob of that sumo wrestler is to take that position in that ring and to hold his ground. He's fixing to hit head on with that 500, 600 pound other guy. But he cannot budge out of that ring. He's got to hold his ground. He cannot move. He's got to keep himself steadfast right there, holding his ground, being firm. If he gets knocked out of the ring, he's been defeated. And folks, I just want us all to be aware tonight that there are things that always come up in our lives and in the church that try to knock us out of and away from the unity that is among us. And it is incumbent upon us as Christians to be Christian-like in this matter of unity and to hold our ground. Not letting things get in our way. Not letting things divide us. That's the tool that Satan wants to destroy churches. Divide the people. And Paul says, I want you to stand fast in one spirit. He puts it this way in Philippians or Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now listen to that word endeavoring. I want you to listen to what one writer says about that word. Hear it now, this word endeavoring. Endeavoring conveys the idea... Hastening to do something with the implication of associated energy with intense effort and motivation. The verb has an element of haste, urgency, or even a sense of crisis to it. It suggests zealous concentration and diligent effort. It also suggests difficulty and a resolute determination to overcome the difficulty. Brethren... The precious fruit of unity is not automatic, but take considerable effort to cultivate and to propagate. Do you hear that? Endeavoring, putting forth that energy and that effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. If you're a Christian, you ought to work hard to keep from severing relationships. Working hard to keep unity of that spirit of love and forbearance and gentleness and understanding and patience and peace within the body of Christ. That is Christian-like. That's the expectation that Paul gives us here. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love. Blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the sons of God. That is the exhibited cooperation that a person who's a Christian should show. But there's a second thing. Not only should we be that united people that stand together, but, but there is a united purpose that we should strive together with. Look again at this verse, verse 27, so packed with stuff. Look at that last phrase. I hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 
As a church body, you have a common goal. You have the same purpose and cause. And you should be united around and striving together for that cause. That phrase striving together, actually again an athletic term. Compound Greek word, soon athleo. Soon is that idea of together. Athleo is that idea we get our word athletics from. It's the idea of to, to contend or to battle or to compete. Actually a phrase that means we're a team. We are a team. One man said, there is to be a mutual striving together side by side, shoulder to shoulder, heart to heart. Paul pictures the local church as a team of athletes striving together to reach their God-given goal. Paul exhorted the Philippians to be friends, not foes, and co-workers, not competitors. Since the church has a common objective and a common adversary, Paul pleads for a united and zealous church to resist the adversary, establish the true faith, and to advance the gospel of Christ. You see, in reality, the strength of your work is you united as a people and having a united purpose. The same purpose. And Paul says here, it's the faith of the gospel. It is showing people Christ. Helping people find and follow Jesus. Reaching your community. And we can always do that better when we're united and we're a team. And everybody's on the team striving for the same purpose and the same cause. I want to show you a video, just a short video real quick. You can start at any time if you want to. It's a video that I believe shows us what being united can do. What you see here is a, tr- is a house moving. That house has 160 legs and it's walking. What you really see here is 80 Omnish men in Sparta, Pennsylvania who some time ago wanted to move this house quite a distance away. They moved it from one location to another foundation. Eighty of them are inside working together to move that house. One cause, one purpose, and united to do it. Now let me ask you a question. What if ten of these men decided that they were going to sleep in that morning and not do their load? What if five of them didn't like the guy that was on the outside marching the orders of where they need to go and where they need to turn? What if somebody else didn't like the position they were in in that house and so while they were moving it, they decided just to let go of their hold and let go and not, not help? You see, folks, in reality, it took all 80 of these men to move the house. It took all 80 of them to accomplish that purpose that they had. And in reality, for this church to do its potential and to really do what God wants it to do, it takes everybody. Because everybody is a somebody that God has placed in the church. 
It's interesting that God uses the illustration of a body to talk about the body. And he places those limbs, those members in the body so that the body can perform to its fullest function. And you know how it is when there's a part of your body that's not functioning to the fullest potential, don't you? I pointed to these young people. They probably don't know that yet. I point to the older people. We know that, don't we? I remember a number of years ago, and you can click that off. I remember a number of years ago, I was up in my bonus room, and I was seated in my chair with my leg up under me. And I'd been there for a while fixing to get up, and when I stood up, I fell flat down. I could not feel my right leg. I looked in the chair to see if it was still in the chair. I honestly could not feel that right leg. I could not stand. I tried and tried and tried. That right leg, you know what it had done? It came unscrewed. No, it didn't come unscrewed. It it went to sleep. And I could not perform what I wanted to perform because of that leg till it came back into function. And folks, that's just like the body of Christ. That's just like the church. To be truthful tonight, there may be some of you that have gone to sleep. You're not functioning as you used to function. And thus the body can't do all that it needs to do. And there's a purpose and there's a cause that we're all to do. Tell the story. That's incumbent upon all of us. And you see, if you are a Christian, there is a cooperation that should be exhibited in your life. And that is doing all that you can to keep the people united. And do all you can to help fulfill the purpose of the faith of the gospel. Tonight you're a Christian, but are you Christian-like? If you are, then there's a conduct that's expected. And there's a cooperation that is exhibited. But could I close with just one more thing I want you to see in verse 28. Because there is also a conflict that is endured. Look at verse 8, 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Now Paul's words are interesting because he actually tells us here that there is a a certain Christian behavior that should be seen in our life even when we're facing troubles, even when we're facing heartaches and trials and sorrows. You see, folks, it's one thing to be a Christian and live like a Christian when you're on the mountain. But it's a lot of difference when you're in the valley. Anybody can live like a Christian ought to live when they're on the mountaintop and everything's going good. But I want to know, how do you live in the valley when you're suffering, when hardships and trials come your way, when things are happening to you that you did not invite into your life and things you did not want to take place in your life? How are you living then? Paul talks about that in this passage. Look what he says in verse 28. He says, And in nothing terrified 
by your adversaries. The word terrified there means alarm, scared, frightened, fearful to let oneself be intimidated is that idea there. And actually one writer said that the word picture is a horse that has been spooked and now he has taken off and ran. That happened to me years ago, by the way. Anybody ever been to the Bill Rice Ranch? Bill Rice Ranch, great Christian place, Murfreesburg, Tennessee. They're known for their, the horses and the horse trails that they have. And I'd taken a group from Cramerton up there, all the young people. And we were on one of those horse trails where the horses stay real calm and easy and just gallop around, you know. I was riding on mine just having an easy time till the crazy horse in front of mine swished his tail too many times in my horse's face. And that thing reared up on two legs and I said, Whoa, I've always wanted to do this. No, I didn't say that either. And that thing broke rank and shot off and just started galloping just as fast as it could. And boy, I was just sitting there. He was spooked. And that's the idea here of Paul's word when he says, Terrified by your adversaries. Folks, how easy it is for us When we face our adversaries, those that oppose us or that which comes against us, people who hate us, the problems that hinder us or the troubles that come our way or the crisis that hits us, how easy it is for us to get spooked and begin to run ourselves from the church or from God. Terrified by that. That's not the Christian way. God wants us to be fearless fighters. God has not given us that spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. And in those difficult times, you and I need that holy boldness to stand our ground. And that's only possible as we keep our faith and our eyes on God and our trust in Him. And when we do that, Paul says it reveals two things. And I close with this, but look quickly at what it says. First of all, it reveals our faith. Look at verse 28. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Paul uses that phrase, evident token. It's a word that means proof. You see, what I think Paul is saying here is that when the Christian behaves as a Christian should in that time of suffering and facing adversaries and facing hardships, those tough times, and they come through that and keep their eyes on the Lord, they're showing their genuine faith. They're showing the real. They're showing to have a relationship with Jesus and not just religion they put on on Sunday mornings. And by the way, this was the whole issue with Satan And Job, you remember? God described Job as a man that that was upright, just, feared God, eschewed evil. And Satan said, no wonder. you got a hedge around him. You favor him. Look at all the blessings that he has. You take all of that away. Put him in the valley. Let him suffer a little bit and he will curse you. And God allowed that. It wasn't long that Job had lost his family and his possessions and what he had. 
And do you know what God said about him after he did? He said, Job, he's still a righteous man. He still eschews evil. He still fears God. And this time he includes, and he has retained his integrity. His wife said, curse God. Why do you hold on to integrity? And Job said, woman, shut up. You speak foolishly. Well, maybe not that first. Do we take good from God and just live for Him in those good times? That's what He asked. And the Bible's clear letting us know that He did not sin with His lips. He said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him. He was faced with those adversaries, those things that just worked against Him, but He was not Terrified, confused, yes. Wondering, yes. Doubtful about what was going on, sure. But he never turned from God. He was genuine. He was real. He was true. And folks, this world needs to see Christians that are not fair weather Christians. The ones that can stand true and stand faithful and be firm in their faith and their trust in God no matter what they are going through. This world wants to see that. Standing like that is an evident token of our true trust in Him. Proof of our faith. But look at what else it says, that last phrase, and that of God. Paul's saying when you stand true and stay faithful, even in the midst of that hardship and those trials... It will prove the faith that you have, but it will also prove the God that you serve. Aren't you glad God is faithful? Aren't you glad He has promised us in those times in the valleys that His grace is sufficient? Aren't you glad that God is good and a refuge in our times of distress and He knows those who trust in Him? Folks, the proof of our God is the matter that in those times He provides for us and gives to us that which we need to stay faithful to Him. The world needs to see that more than ever before. A faith. That is genuine. A trust that is firm. How are you doing in the conflicts that you have in your life? You see, tonight, if, if you are a Christian, then you need to be Christian-like. And it does involve your conduct. There's an expectation of how you ought to live. There's a cooperation you need to exhibit. And conflicts, we need to endure. I want to do more than just say I'm a Christian, don't you? I want to live it. I want to show it. 